Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to be talking about the development of the labour movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Great Britain and particularly the emergence of the Labour Party. A working class movement had been developing since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. One only needs to look at the period of protest between 1815 and 1848 with the development of radical groups such as the Blanketeers, the uh, Luddites, uh, and eventually the development in the late 1830s of the Chartist movement, um, demanding the adoption of a people's charter um, in, uh, in Great Britain. Um, the failure of the Chartist movement uh, after 1848 was largely the result of um, an enormous um, and rapid economic boom that Britain went through, but also the development of a, um, a new type of trade unionism, the, the new model unions. The new model unions were um, the, the unions of skilled workers, um, skilled workers such as engineers, um, a great example of new model unionism, if you want to quote it, is the ASE, the Amalgamated Society of Engineers. Um, these were um, unions who were closed shops, really, for uh, highly skilled workers. And this is part of the development of a kind of a schism within Britain's working classes between skilled workers and unskilled um, and there was less kind of protest, less um, uh, of a, a, an emphasis on strikes and um, uh, walkouts and lockouts and, and that sort of thing. Um, and they were um, really um, about ensuring the cohesiveness of the profession and the status of skilled uh, workers in, in terms of, of pay. Um, they uh, involved um, the uh, provision of services for members such as um, uh, illness insurance, uh, sickness insurance um, in, time, in times of hardship, which were paid for by subscription. So these were 
you know, it, to make an analogy between them and the guilds of the Middle Ages is very clumsy and something that's kind of not not quite fitting. But they had more of a, a kind of a, a role in um, protecting and in uh, and um, supporting individual crafts than they did thinking in terms of workers' solidarity or a, a wider working working class movement. Um, and they're quite expensive to uh, to be members of. Um, so they are um, prohibitively so for sort of less skilled or unskilled workers don't get to 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 be in them because of the of the cost and the uh, the lack of a trade. Um, they were also um, the, the the new model unions. They tended to protect skilled workers against other workers. They are not so much a focus of protest against an, an oppressive managing sort of capitalist class, um, and the, but they are about keeping the status of skilled workers as part of what would be referred to as labour aristocracy. The second half of the 19th century sees a real transformation in the labour movement. It becomes a far more um, politicised and um, uh, class-based um, uh, set of institutions. Um, Radicals um, looked upon the new unions as kind of betrayers of the working class. They were there really to look after a small section of the working class, but not the, the class as itself. Um, and they had really made their peace with the capitalist system and looked to see what skilled workers could um, get out of it. Um, this is more than understandable in a way. This is how institutions work for, for their members. Um you have to wait really till the the eighteen eighties um, for a kind of a new um, wave of um, union development. Now, confusingly, the new model unions are developed in the eighteen fifties, and the new the wave of unionism that develops in the eighteen eighties is new unionism, not to be confused with new model unionism. Um, the new unionism was um, the development of large unions giant unions which were designed to cater for unskilled workers. These were by their very nature more confrontational. Um, the Dockers Union particularly, um, certainly in the 1880s and 90s, has a series of confrontations with um, the owners of docks in uh, London and the, the, the South Ports, um, which are um, violent, they are confrontational and they are um, really, really quite um, seminal moments in the labour movement, the uh, strike for the, the Dockers' tanner. And it's these new unions that have a far more um, amicable relationship with the various socialist parties and organisations that have existed um, in, and developed in the 1880s. Um, the idea that... You know, property should be um, uh, abolished, um, that um, the um, resources of Great Britain were should be put into to common ownership, um, and that capitalism itself is a kind of a monstrous and exploitative concept. Um, these are all ideas that are quite prevalent among the new unions and among the various different uh, socialist organisations that develop. Um, the most prolific one in London by 1881 was Henry Hindman's 
Social Democratic Federation. Hindman was an admirer of Marx. I think Marx um, probably was vaguely aware of his existence. Um, Hindman was a, a, a member of the gentry um, who had um, decided to renounce his um, title and status and uh, become a, uh, a member of the, uh, the revolutionary socialist underground. Um, the um, Social Democratic Federation um, were advocated um, a forcible overthrow of the capitalist system. And uh, people like Henry Heinemann were quite well connected in London with the various anarchist emigres from Russia and France and Spain and Italy uh, and, and or, or across Europe. Um, he never really quite uh, acquires the status of uh, some of the more um, famous ones, like kind of Enrico Malatesta, uh, or any of the um, disciples of uh, Mikhail Bakunin. Um, but um, very much, you know, when you read between the lines, uh, Heinemann is um, very much kind of riding on the coattails of, of, of greater figures within, within the, the revolutionary left. The democratic left um, in 1884 sees the development of the Fabian Society. Uh, the Fabian Society, named after the Roman general Fabius, who um, his strategy was to encircle cities and to wear them down gradually. And they believed that that's what they were going to do with um, capitalism, was to encircle it and gradually wear it down. Um, they were not revolutionaries. These were um, upper and middle class intellectuals and progressives who believed that a, a, um, a peaceful uh, path to socialism could be, uh, could be had. Um, they had a, um, a belief in Robert Owen's um, mutualism, where, um, which was the, the ideas that founded the cooperative movement, that um, workers should all have a share of the proceeds of, of what they create. Um, and the um, leading figures within the, the, the Fabian movement were Sidney and Beatrice Webb, of whom I've spoken many times before, George Bernard Shaw, and later people such as H.G. Wells. Um, and f a long way down the line in the 19, um, 1930s, uh, when Sidney and Beatrice are in their dotage, the experience of the Great Depression makes them um, come to the conclusion that capitalism can't be reformed. And they take rather a shine to Soviet Russia at this point. Um, so a great deal of the work of the Fabians was um, analytical. Um, they did a great deal of social research into trade unions, the condition of the working classes, and they um, provide an awful lot of the kind of the, the intellectual uh, underpinning of the labour movement. Um, Sidney Webb writes the, the Labour Party's constitution um, uh, in 1918, particularly with reference to, to clause for the public ownership uh, of um, uh, the, uh, the uh, commitment to public ownership. Okay, so the, in 1893, the Independent Labour Party is born. Now, it's important not to confuse the ILP with the uh, Labour Party, of which we're going to talk about it in a moment. It really is a very different creature altogether. 
with links to the trade unions and um, with Methodism uh, and other non-conformist branches of Christianity. And um, the uh, strategy that the Independent Labour Party wanted to pursue was what was a parliamentary one. Um, they wanted to get a, a, a socialist party into parliament for the first time. Um, the movement on the left is um, aided immensely by the development of the Trade Union Congress, um, which gave, which was a kind of um, a, a a federation movement for for uh, the, the the trade union movement in general. Um, and they wanted to see if they could coordinate the workings of unions. Um, they wanted to give unit unions more unity with one another so that they weren't being played off against one another by employers. Um, the uh, period throughout the 1890s is also a kind of a, a golden age for the left because in Britain, the 1890s is a period of acute recession and an economic crisis. Um, the uh, numbers of unemployed, of, of unemployed increase, but not sufficiently to weaken the unions. Normal economic theory has it during the 20th century, when you do have the phenomena of mass unemployment in, in the millions, um, that having a, what Marx would refer to as a reserve labour army, i.e. A, a large number of uh, potentially potential workers or unemployed people, that that tends to drive down wages, it tends to make people um, less likely to cooperate with one another against employers because they're desperate for work and it tends to make the union movement in general a awful lot weaker. One of the most significant test cases of the period was the um, Lyons versus Wilkins ruling. Um, Jay Lyons and Sons um, took the Amalgamated Society of Leather Workers uh, to court uh, in 1896, claiming that when the society had gone out on strike, that union pickets, um, union uh, work, union members standing at the factory gates trying to dissuade other workers from going in, had intimidated workers who wished to go and continue working. Um, Wilkins um, was the trade union official. Um, Wilkins, in the case, the Lions versus Wilkins case, was the official. Um, who was named in the action, so was seen as chiefly responsible. Um, the the judgment um, basically uh, said that the union was in the wrong, that the workers had a right to work, and the implication was that it was um, illegal to uh, pick it to prevent workers from getting to their jobs. Um, the... Uh, Council for the union, the the, uh, the 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 legal representatives of the union said that you know in 1875 the Israelis Trade Union Act had permitted uh, pickets attending in order to obtain. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, "What the." F- are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And communicates information. And the, the judges basically said that, well, in this case, um, there's no difference between simply being there and communicating information, which is on one hand legal, and what you're doing, which is um, harassment or watching and besetting, as, as they called it. So um, this, is, this is not lawful. And this, is, this has a, a damaging effect um, on the, the union movement. There are, of course, in this period, more militant unions anyway, um, which seem to be able to articulate this this deep-seated and often unspoken anger by the, the unskilled working class uh, their um, their living conditions. Um, and the in 1897, TUC member unions, who are, the TUC by this point is dominated by the, um, uh, the new unions, they vote to allow the TUC to become more militant. In 1899, the TUC uh, pushed for a new initiative that made sure that working-class representation in the House of Commons occurred. And this is where, really, you get the Labour Representation Committee of 1900, which is the the embryonic Labour Party. So the Labour Representation Committee draws together the unions, the Independent Labour Party, the the Fabians and Henry Hyman's Social Democrats um, into an alliance. And and this is part of the reason why even now, kind of 116 years on, you have a Labour Party which is, when you look into it, a whole federation of uh, different um, groups and interests and and, um, different takes on what the idea of democratic socialism is, is meant to be. Um, the um, independent Labour Party um, would be uh, a force within the uh, Labour Representation Committee, but would eventually be, be forced out um, uh, overall by the 1930s. Um, in, a way, in many ways, the Labour Party has been a kind of never-ending civil war for most of its existence, if you look at the ministries of Ramsay MacDonald, um, the um, uh, shadow ministries of Hugh Gateskill, um, Harold Wilson, um, James Callaghan, throughout the 1980s, Neil Kinnock and Militant, um, Tony Blair seemed to have throttled the left in the party, but uh, under the guise of Jeremy Corbyn, it has it has returned with a, a vast kind of um, grassroots membership. 
So there has been this this kind of struggle within the Labour Party throughout most of its existence, on and off. So initially, um, only two um, Labour MPs were were elected from the um, for the the Labour uh, Representation Committee, um, and the uh, and this was in nineteen hundred. Um, but in um, nineteen o six, it does an awful lot better. What had happened in the meantime had been the Taft Vale case. Um, the, in 1900, the Amalgamated Society of Railway Servants and the Railwomen's Trade, the Railwomen's Trade Union, had um, struck uh, gone on strike against the Taft Vale Railway Company here in Wales, um, which was um, refusing to recognise the union as the representative of its employees uh, for negotiating paying conditions. Uh, when the union uh, went on strike in, uh, in August 1900 to force the company to back down, the Taft Vale company reacted and um, they were of the opinion they were good employers, that they hadn't done anything wrong and therefore that the strike action was malicious, was punitive. Um, the company um, had you know, a reasonably good track record of dealing with its workers. It had a, a, a pension scheme um, and um, reasonably good conditions relative to the times. Um, the High Court, with grants um, the Taft Vale Company an injunction against the strike to declare the strike illegal, um, the union then overturned this injunction, um, and the uh, question arises throughout the course, the, the course of the uh, conflict as to whether the union can be held liable if the strike is deemed to be illegal for costs incurred to the company. And if this was the case, then um, this would have a massive effect on strike action up and down the land. The, um, uh, in 1901, um, the union was sued for losses and was hit with a bill of £23,000 plus costs of £20,000 um, which virtually bankrupts the union. Um, and the Labour Representation Committee sees on this and they say, well, you've effectively, judicially and economically banned the right to strike. No union can afford it. It's impossible. Um, and the, uh, the, the Labour Representation Committee's goal, therefore, in Parliament is now to um, prevent unions from being sued for losses resu- resulting from strike action. Um, and therefore, uh, the, NR, the Labour Representation Committee uh, believed that only a significant large working class party in the House of Commons can have any effect in this at all. That uh, Workers' rights will be continued to be overthrown and prorogued uh, whenever this, this doesn't exist. In 1906, the committee uh, win 29 seats in Parliament, um, partly through a deal with the Liberals um, who they have a, an electoral pact with. The Liberals, of course, uh, in 1906 win a, a landslide election and sweep the Conservatives away. Um, and the, the Liberals um, begin to really shift towards the question of social reform. A um, new liberalism uh, emerges um, away from the old kind of laissez-faire liberalism. And it's all about state intervention and improving the conditions of the poor. And they do this, really, likes of Asquith and Lloyd George do this really because they can feel the popularity of the Labour Party snapping at their heels. Um, the uh, in nineteen ten, 
um, the Labour Party, as it's now called, um, returns 40 MPs to Parliament, and they are on the cusp of turning into a significant electoral force. And the second election that year, um, the uh, Labour Party win another two seats, so they, they win 40, they're at 42. Um, the, the problem of funding is always a significant I- I- issue, um, but overall there was a apparent upward trajectory in the party's fortunes. But you have to bear in mind the following things. In 1906, there were 29 Labour uh, candidates. There were two independent Labour candidates and 21 trade union-sponsored MPs who had previously been Liberals, who joined the party and created, by prior to the January election of 1910, a block of 52. The January election of 1910 actually sees a decline of 12 MPs for Labour, who fell to 40. Um, and then rose back up into 42 in, on, in December uh, 1910, um, falling back again due to by-election losses in 1914 to 36 seats. So what does this suggest? Well, first it suggests that liberal social reform was very popular with the working classes, and it also suggests that um, the relationship that working-class people in Great Britain had with the uh, the Labour Party wasn't as cut and dry as, as unconditional support. Very often there were working class people that identified with conservatism, that identified with um, the Liberals. They looked at these uh, parties, the parties of their social betters, so to speak, with an immense amount of kind of deference and um, uh, <clears throat> the uh, admiration of um, the... Uh, uh, the, the the upper classes um, that does shape working class attitudes considerably. I think I mentioned previously, looking at Gramsci a few podcasts ago, uh, that there is nothing that marks in in Marx that uh, predicts um, the possibility of working classes that vote against their own interests. But time and time again, it seems to happen. Um, the Liberal uh, government makes a series of um, social reforms, not simply as uh, concessions to Labour, but um, some might argue that that's that's what was happening here. The Liberal governments were to some extent doing what they thought was genuinely necessary. In some instances, they were making concessions to Labour, and in some instances, they didn't want their Labour to 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 steal their act. Um, so you can suggest that the pressure from Labour. What about things such as the School Meals Act, which made sure that children were fed properly at school in 1906? The Trades Dispute Act in 1906, which reversed the Taft Bail Judgment? And very importantly, the introduction of pay for MPs uh, in 1911. Prior to this, working class MPs uh, were not able to take their seats in Parliament because they, they couldn't afford to. Uh, this is one thing that had stymied the Chartists almost a century beforehand. In the final years before the First World War, labour relations dramatically decline. Um, in 1910, a, a huge uh, coal strike um, broke out in South Wales, uh, which led to virtual fighting on the streets in Tonopandy, um, where there were uh, violent clashes and even one mine was killed. Um, Winston Churchill, um, as the Home Secretary, sent in the army 
to, to deal with the situation. Um, and there was the phenomenon of uh, sympathetic strikes for uh, by dock workers, um, which always presented the government with significant challenges because it meant that unions could coordinate to, to try to bring the, the government to their knees. In 1914, the Miners' Union, um, the Railway and Transport um, Workers' Federation, um, tried to create a triple alliance of unions um, uh, to coordinate action together. Um, this was a uh, what we would refer to as syndicalism, which was the, the use of unions really to, to bring about the overthrow of, of the capitalist system. And some might argue that the Liberal government itself is spared this crisis by the advent of the First World War. This is um, obviously the view of George Dangerfield, who famously wrote The Strange Death of Liberal England, um, and the idea that England had really been liberal England had been given an unnatural stay of life as a result of the First World War. Much of this militancy was not popular with the party itself, who had uh, begun to uh, develop as a parliamentary organisation, and um, the uh, aspects of the party that were more radical certainly weren't revolutionary, and revolutionary um, tendencies within the party had been effectively strangled by the eve of the First World War. So there was um, a... The uh, militancy presents the party with a difficult situation. They have to appear to be sympathetic, but ultimately they view it as troublesome, dangerous and counterproductive, and um, a support for the parliamentary system um, is seen as, as paramount. Okay, well, I've gone on for long enough. I always tend to do this when I'm talking about um, uh, the trade unions for some reason. But um, anyway, if you're a teacher and you're teaching this subject uh, and you want more help, um, free uh, lesson uh, handouts, uh, materials and stuff to make your classes really go with a bang, get my new newsletter. It's www.outstandinghistory.com dot com forward slash instant dash access get that and i'll be sending you free study materials for your classrooms every monday morning every friday night and um yeah you'll like it so outstandinghistory.com forward slash instant dash access get that sign up and there is an initial gift of five free lessons for you thanks very much Bye bye 